difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Taj Robinson. And Genevieve Kosky. On our last episode, we talked about Mel Brooks's The Producers, which broached the sticky question of how to make a comedy around Adolf Hitler. On this episode, we're bringing in Jojo Rabbit, Taika Waititi's controversial new coming-of-age film about a 10-year-old German boy named Jojo Betzler in the waning days of World War II. Jojo lives alone with his caring mother, Rosie, played by Scarlett Johansson, and he's firmly in the nationalist grasp of Nazi Germany, thanks in part to his relationship to his imaginary friend, Adolf Hitler, played by Watiti. While in a Hitler youth training camp, Jojo develops a relationship with the cynical Captain Klenzendorf, played by Sam Rockwell, but back home, his loyalties are complicated by the discovery of a Jewish girl hiding in the upstairs crawl space. Her name is Elsa Kor, played by Thomas and Mackenzie. And while Jojo's instinct is to turn her in, he's persuaded that doing so would get his mother killed. Over time, of course, his feelings start to change as he listens less to his imaginary friend and more to the girl in the crawl space and to his own developing conscience. At the same time, the war is starting to turn against the Nazis in dramatic fashion, and a reckoning for Jojo and the country is at hand. We'll talk about how it all goes down after the break. Today you boys will be involved in such activities as war games, ah! ambush techniques, and blowing stuff up. I don't think I can do this. Russ? Of course you can. comes When I was your age, I had an imaginary friend. Got me in so much trouble. Kids, it's time to burn some books. Yeah! You're growing up too fast. Ten-year-olds shouldn't be celebrating war and talking politics. Hitler. I wish more of our young boys had your blind fanaticism. <laughs> Did you know Jews can read each other's minds? But how would you know if you saw one? They could look just like us. Jojo Rabbit by uh, Taika Waititi. What did everyone think? I saw this at TIFF. I wrote about it. I talked uh, on NPR about it. So I, I feel like I'm repeating myself. I feel like I've been on this hamster wheel for a couple months now but i was pretty mixed on it like mm-hmm. mixed to negative but not for the reasons that made it controversial not because of taika watiti playing hitler not because of making uh trying to make hitler funny although i will say uh when i saw this at tiff i saw it back to back with terrence malick's a hidden life which is wow. a you know 12 to 20 hour uh, at least i'm, I'm pretty nice. sure it was 20 hours hey. uh exploration <laughs> so of, as long as it needed to be oh god it's so long uh, it's a <laughs> terrible it's, it's a long and incredibly depressing exploration of the destruction of the life of an austrian conscientious objector uh by the slow crushing wheels of hitler's germany mm-hmm. and seeing the the films back to back it's pretty much like you said in the in the first episode with with not reminding people what Hitler did because it makes it harder to take the comedy. Mm-hmm. Seeing Jojo Rabbit as this, you know, kind of like lighthearted, oh, Hitler is a like a wacky caricature, and then just experiencing in a very large scale like the agonies of what he actually did to people, what his policies did to people, uh, what the Reich did to people, really takes the humor out of it. 
nonetheless, that wasn't really my problem with the film. My problem with the film was first that it starts as a pretty fun, like unconventional, playful, kind of Wes Anderson-y comedy. Um, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> not not just because the setting is so reminiscent of Moonrise Kingdom, mm-hmm. uh, but because of like the lightness and quirkiness and uh, fussiness, really, of the setting of the the humor. There's a very you know New Zealand deadpan comedy that Taika Waititi has perfected um, that's very cultural and very specific to him that plays out uh, throughout the first third of the movie and I really enjoyed it. Once we get into the business with a girl in the attic, suddenly we're in a film that I've seen many, many times and I'm pretty tired of. Uh, I was fine with it when it was The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. I thought it was pretty badly done when it was The Book Thief. But this idea of the the German kid and the Jewish kid in the attic that needs to be protected, or really just the, the friendship between a German kid and a, a Jewish child, has been done over and over and over as a way to explore Nazi Germany and the human cost of it. And it just... It it felt very trite to me. It felt very familiar and it felt overdone and sentimental and treacly in a way that I didn't appreciate. Uh, I thought the Scarlett Johansson character was interesting and had a lot going on for her and the dynamic there was interesting. So then the movie just kind of boots her out of the story. And at the point where it does, it just starts becoming increasingly implausible for me that Jojo is able to keep any of this up. The lengths that he goes to to keep his secret under control, it all just kind of falls apart into like cliche and and familiar mawkish sentiment for me. And it just it really didn't live up to the potential either of the the first third of the movie or just of every Taika Waititi film that I've seen up until now. What do you think, Genevieve? I don't disagree with some of the things you're saying, Tasha, although I think I was more positive overall than you were. I really liked Scarlett Johansson in this movie, and I found the mother-son relationship there much more engaging than the one between Jojo and Elsa. And was not particularly enamored of how the Jojo-Elsa relationship resolved. But I also wouldn't really go so far as to say that the movie becomes mawkish in the end. I think that it remains fairly audacious up through the invasion by allied forces uh, at, at the very end and setting aside the whole like we dance because we're free button which i think is definitely where it you know treads into life is beautiful territory in a in a not pleasing way i think there is enough of that sort of deadpan humor that you're talking about juxtaposed with real images of horror through the end of the film that it keeps that sort of tonal tension going to the end in a way that that made it work for me. I don't have no problems with this movie, um, but I overall enjoyed it. I think Watiti is a very interesting and assured filmmaker, and that comes through here. As for like the controversial aspects of this this movie, I'm you know, you guys both saw it at TIFF or just you, Tasha? Uh, just Tasha. I saw. Yeah. I, did, I just saw it recently. Okay. It seems like a lot of the narrative about this being controversial came out of TIFF, but I'm, I'm kind of having trouble putting my finger on specifically what the controversy is meant to be, other than the fact that this is yet another movie about a, a funny Hitler, which, as this pairing shows, is not the first one of. So, like, it almost feels like the 
quote unquote controversy around this movie is a maybe a little bit of a a marketing thing happening. But I would I, I guess I would like to be convinced as from you know people who have been perhaps more engaged in the conversation from an earlier point, like where the controversy comes from here. Is it the Sam Rockwell character? I, f- I feel like it could maybe be there. I mean, my understanding was that it's not it's not so much a controversy as that's one of the few words we have in the English language for something mm-hmm. that people disagree about. It's like our favorite word for it. Uh, it was polarizing. Uh, people, critics and, and viewers alike either tend to love it or tend to hate it. And there are different reasons for that. But part of it is just a lot of people just find it offensive, just find it taking lightly things that should not be taken lightly. Uh, The NPR show that I was on uh, to discuss this, one of the other panelists was like somebody highly placed at the Holocaust Museum. And they brought him in just specifically to talk about like the history of making light of the Holocaust in film and sort of where the dividing line uh, falls between making fun of victims and making fun of uh, like like big emotions, essentially, where, where the line is between making fun of Hitler and making fun of the people who suffered under him. So, like, part of it is definitely sort of based around, is it okay to joke about this? Which I think we're in a cultural moment where we're questioning that more than we ever have before. But part of it just flat out comes from the the sensation that a lot of people walked out of this movie like angry and resentful and hating it and there doesn't seem this seems to be one of those films where there's not a ton of middle ground uh for people who are like yeah that was an experience yeah that's my reaction i'm i'm perplexed by people who would take the stance of like oh this is just offensive i hate this thing it's just because to me my issue with the film is that it's kind of weak sauce i don't think it's nearly as provocative as it could be and and should be and it certainly doesn't live up to you know needing like a a tagline like an anti-hate satire it's not really a satire and I didn't really feel like its agenda is, is necessarily anti-hate. I feel like it's almost like, you know, base covering on the part of the studio. But I don't feel like the film is at all like, I mean, you watch a film like Life is Beautiful. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, this film is really going for something. And you can certainly see, understand why people would react strongly against a movie like that. But, I mean, there's a lot of sobering moments in this film. I mean, you could say, yeah. well, you can, if, you can, if you're going to say, well, it just minimizes, you know, Nazi Germany. I mean, come on, this kid's mom is like hanging yeah. in the public square. I mean, this is not, this film delivers in that respect. I mean, and it delivers the fear that people are feeling. I mean, to me, one of the, one of the scenes of the film I really like is when uh, Stephen Merchant turns up with the Gestapo and starts searching the house and questioning people and, you know, everyone's making with the Heil Hitlers and whatnot. Oh, is it, is the kitty? Is he coming down? No, he's standing on the landing. He doesn't come down to the basement. That's very out. unusual. I'm very excited here. <laughs> Sorry. He's so cute. Yeah. He's become super social. He's not a shy boy anymore. He's a little brat. Um, <laughs> so let's go back to that scene I was talking about, and hopefully Julius will uh, not distract us too much uh, more. So th- yeah, so that scene really captured what I was missing for the rest of the movie, which is a real tension between you know danger and comedy. I mean, it's a, it's a very funny scene, but there is that thread of just like this thing is gonna could unravel and it could be terrible for everybody. I mean, because if this girl is found, then this is that's bad for JoJo and that's bad for the girl and that's bad for the the mother i guess who things are going to be bad for anyway and uh i just that was absent for the rest of the film i found it the rest of the film to be acute 
um, which is not uh, a lot of the time, and then cloying for some of the other time. And it just didn't deliver for me a very strong experience either way. I just I felt it needed to provoke more than it did. I just feel like, I mean, for me, Scarlett Johansson's death just didn't land at all. It's meant to be uh, this moment of, of shocking loss and grief and power. And for me, I'm just not sure that I can feel those kinds of emotions coming shortly on the heels of an extended and lengthy joke about where the Queen Jew lays her eggs. This movie was so over the top in so many ways about misperceptions of the other and what happens to the brains of people who are steadily fed a diet of propaganda. Uh, it's meant to be ridiculous. Like oh, the things that Jojo Rabbit believes are just so over the top and, and ludicrous in the same sort of way that Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel seem to be in different movies, uh, like Rebel Wilson and Scarlett Johansson in this movie, <laughs> like just they're they're on completely different planets in terms of what their characters are trying to do, like where they where they land, uh, how they work, and I just for me. Like, I enjoyed the comedy aspects of the film fine, but pretty much any attempt to, to head into hardcore heavy-duty sentiment, I was like, no, you're, you're just in the wrong movie for this. You've set up a premise. So Rebel Wilson who's, not in the, who's in the right movie and not Scarlett Johansson? <laughs> I, Rebel Wilson is in a completely different movie from everybody else, including uh-huh. Sam Rockwell yeah. and Al, Alfie Allen. And I don't know that i would like that movie she she maybe she's in the producers like she's yeah. definitely in a completely different variety of movie of of comedy than an awful lot of this movie is operating on i to me it just the whole movie feels disjointed it's a whole bunch of parts that to me don't fit together at all you know who is definitely in a taika watiti movie in this movie taika watiti uh, <laughs> well yes but also archie yates who plays his friend Yorkie? Yeah. <laughs> Damn, Damn yeah. straight. Like that. Like he's just such a quintessential like Taika Waititi child character, you know. And that aspect of his voice just comes out in that character. Yeah, very, very much of a, a hunt for the wilder people type of, yeah. type of kid. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. He, I, I feel like there's a separate movie. This just everything he's doing during this film, and it's a hunt for the wilder people type movie. Uh, and it's much better than this one. I, I mean, I love Hunt for the Wilder People. It's one of the few movies that I can, without reservation, like recommend to cynical, bitter, f- twisted film critics and like people who want something safe to show their grandma or their kids. Like it's just, to me, it's it's just a perfect family friendly movie. And I wanted this to be as different from like past Holocaust movies as Hunt for the Wilder People is from, you know, most most family friendly uplift movies. And I feel like he's trying for that. Like I, I give him points for ambition. I give him points for trying to break out outside the box and do something unconventional and something something daring that most people wouldn't go into. I just don't think he's doing it very well. I mean, I think what he's doing is something he's done several times before and it's making a coming of age movie you know like that's what this really is it's about the character of jojo and it's just like wrapped in these nazi germany trappings that end up injecting a lot more elements into the film that are maybe less successful but like the heart of this movie is like jojo figuring out himself outside of an outside role model or force, you know, whether it's Hitler or his mother or Elsa, like, you know, he's kind of projecting onto these other figures in in his life and on the way to figuring out 
what he wants and and what kind of person he is and it doesn't really and i think like looking at it as a coming of age movie the ending doesn't land for me because it just it feels like it cheats it takes a shortcut to resolution for that character you know with the we're free and we dance nonsense. Mm. Um, so I think maybe that's where this sort of sense that there's not enough danger is coming from because it seems like it's telling one type of story, but it's actually telling a very conventional kind of story that's just kind of has this wrapping around it. I just think what he does, his thing, uh, tonally doesn't really suit the setting all that well a lot of the time i mean you know what he does you know you think about like what we do in the shadows or thor ragnarok or hunt for the wilder people there's just there's a silliness a, a an innocence a jokiness and in lightness to them that this film kind of struggles to incorporate smoothly but sometimes when it does it's kind of thrilling i mean like the very beginning of the film is like really electric you know just when you get when you get into that really cool montage set to a, you know a german version of a Beatles song. Mm-hmm. I thought that was great. I liked the evocation, I guess, of something like A Hard Day's Night, where it's like, oh yeah, Beatlemania and Hitlermania are kind of the same kind of thing, right? The implication being just like, you know, that you've got people who, who are just swept up in this hysteria, and one, one of them is more malevolent than the other, but the nature of that kind of mass movement is is the same, and, and, and there's something kind of like it's it's hard as an ordinary person not to become part of that, or at least it should be harder than it is anyway. But uh, yeah, so in fits and starts, this film works for me. But there's also kind of this secondhand Wes Anderson quality to a lot of it. As Tasha talked about Moonrise Kingdom, I definitely thought about Moonrise Kingdom and all the Hitler Youth camp scenes. Uh, it's just I don't know. It just it it didn't. It just doesn't. The whole thing just doesn't come together like it's supposed to. Um, and I was I'm kind of a little surprised that it is having quite the impact that it has because it's having in either direction that it's, it could be this polarizing because to me it's just like it just isn't strong enough in either to earn either one either end of those reactions yeah i see what you're saying i i just really think that if the film followed through on the promise of those early scenes i feel like the conflict between Jojo and the other boys, the environment that he's in, where there's a lot of cultural tension uh, because of, you know, Germany's, because again, of the propaganda that everybody's been fed, because of this feeling that German power is defined in a certain way, and that they all have to embody it, this feeling that, you know, all of these like, eight and and 12, eight and 10 and 12 year olds uh, need to represent some form of masculinity by doing things like killing a bunny. Mm. Uh, That to me felt a lot realer. And by real, I don't necessarily mean could happen in the real world. I just mean like evocative of actual emotions, sort of metaphorically evocative of what people go through with bullying all the time, what people go through with believing the things that their parents tell them, believing the things that they hear on television, just osmosing in certain beliefs about the world that they hold to like in in that level of childhood just very, very strongly, you know, that they believe is the complete truth about the world. I think exploring that in the way that he does in that first act up into the point of of Jojo like 
horribly injuring himself in a an attempt to be what he thinks he needs to be. Yeah. I think that would have just been such a more powerful story. And I feel like that story, Taika Waititi as Hitler, which we haven't really talked about Taika Waititi's performance at all. Mm-hmm. Taika Waititi's performance as Hitler, which is just so in keeping with the the kind of like light bouncy humor and dark undercore of that that first act. Uh, and I wish the whole movie followed up on that and didn't try to take us into the realm of of dead parents and bathos basically yeah i don't know uh <laughs> the more you talk about this movie the more i i want to defend it even though I, <laughs> I like i said i i don't not have problems with it but like regarding the wes andersonian uh beginning i i think what ytd would say based on you know some interviews i've read with him is that in the, those opening scenes, he is trying to evoke a, a world seen through the eyes of a child. You know, it's a, a childlike mentality, both visually and in the dialogue. And I think, again, going back to this sort of being a coming of age film, the idea is that that stuff should fall away or become more more complicated somehow as, as the movie progresses and as Jojo becomes more more complicated in his, his outlook on life. I don't think the movie does that like on a, on a style level you know i don't think it's it has as strong a sense of its tone as it progresses as it does in those beginning moments when we're just getting like pure uncut child jojo you know it, it doesn't quite know how to grow as a movie along with its protagonist if that if that makes sense and i think it kind of maybe gets a little muddled because of that i think that makes a lot of sense yeah, I think it's true that there's kind of like, hey, I'm a kid going to camp kind of thing, even though it's a different kind of camp. One positive aspect, I mean, because the film does have, it does have a lot going for it. I mean, one thing I liked about the film, too, was how specific it was in evoking the end of the war. Uh, and I think it mm-hmm. does a lot through the Sam Rockwell character, too. It's just like, what are we even doing? You know, this is like, this is a losing cause. And I so, found that character very interesting. Yeah. And not not unproblematic but i think there's a there's a lot going on in that character and there's a definite progression to that that character has an, a very strong arc i feel that, that we see play out in the movie you know uh, your question about where controversy comes from in this movie i know that a lot of people that were angered that were very angered by this movie like one of the big points of contention was whether this movie gives him too much of an arc whether right. it is offensive to celebrate something positive yeah uh, to give a nazi a redeeming a redeeming human ending to his arc basically this is another thing we'll we'll talk about i'm sure in connections but i think the fact that that character i think is pretty clearly coded as gay and also disfigured allows the progression his character takes to i think i think it earns it but I can see not agreeing with that. I'm excited. This, it, this is going to be this is uh, this is a, a trailer of sorts for our for our uh, <laughs> for our connections because I think I think that's a that's a good thought. I think I think that is the type of character who represents what I wanted this movie to be of of someone who because that is a that is a provocative character and a dynamic character and. Again, we're, we're we're reaching this point in the war that the film does such a good job evoking of just like this is this is the end and, and what a what a waste you know what a waste that we have to go through any of this that 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 these boys have to go through this 
this training camp and the, you know as if as if it's going to make any difference at all uh, you know what a waste of course that people still have to lose their lives and be tormented by the Gestapo and and um, it's just it's all for nothing because the writing's on the wall it's gonna, this is not going to be a winning effort um there's also like part of that end of the war aspect is just getting back to Yorkie uh, who is such a an adorable <laughs> such a Taika Waititi character and through him just kind of seeing like how desperate Germany has become, like how yeah. strained their resources are, like how far they've had to push in order to try to keep training people. You know, this, this little boy now thinks of himself <laughs> as a soldier, thinks of himself as very effectual, uh, has quite a bit of weapons training <laughs> under his belt. <laughs> that, 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 that's the great that visual gag at the end is so great with the, uh, I think they give it away in the trailer too, with him, of him just accidentally firing that little rocket launcher. Uh, that's that's uh, good stuff and for me that that care like when Genevieve talked about how great that character is that character kind of sums up again what the movie could have done and isn't doing like that combination of very New Zealand humor in his his kind of like deadpan effectualness like his his dedication to the cause his the way he takes everything super super seriously but is still coded in a way that we can kind of like chuckle at him uh, at both how ineffectual he is and how cute he is. Like, it's just, it's a neat little package of this is a horrible thing that's happening. You know, this is a, a child soldier whose childhood has been taken away and yet it doesn't affect him at all. Like he's still like in this, this light and sunny place. He's still sort of having fun and doing his duty. Like it's a very rich, complicated character that we really only get for a few moments. Maybe he wouldn't be nearly as strong if we spent more time with him. There's a lot to talk about with, with this movie and with the producers uh, and the connections and not that many connections really between them. So we'll be right back after the break to do connections. Poor Jojo. What's wrong, little man? Hi, Adolf. Want to tell me about that rabbit incident? What was all that about? They wanted me to kill it. I'm sorry. I couldn't. Don't worry about it. I couldn't care less. But now they call me a scared rabbit. Let them say whatever they want. People used to say a lot of nasty things about me. Oh, this guy's a lunatic. Oh, look at that psycho. He's going to get us all killed. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. The rabbit is no coward. The humble little bunny faces a dangerous world every day, hunting carrots for his family, for his country. My empire will be full of all animals. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Uh, well, one thing is uh, Funny Hitler's. Uh, I think that's probably the strongest connection. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yes, I mean, two uh, Jewish directors making movies uh, about with funny Hitlers. But they're they're obviously funny in different ways. So so let's talk about it. Well, they're also funny in kind of the same ways, which like very notably they're both they're both pretty swishy. Mm-hmm. They're both pretty effeminate they're both pretty immature uh self-absorbed um kind of like whiny and self-pitying but at the same time uh having all of these beliefs of uh an actual hitler the combination there of fanaticism and uh childishness is meant to be kind of like endearing and hilarious uh maybe a little more so in jojo rabbit where he's literally 
like engaging with a child, arguing with a child, supporting a child, uh, teaching a child, as opposed to an actor portraying him uh, in a, an incompetent, laughable way. But the characterizations to me are actually kind of surprisingly similar. Yeah. Well, and they're also, they're also both characterizations that are reflective of other characters more than they are of Hitler. You know, like, like, the, like the Hitler in Jojo Rabbit is Hitler as Jojo has, has imagined him, not as Hitler actually is. And the Hitler in, um, I almost called it Springtime for Hitler, which is what Mel Brooks would have uh, preferred to be called. But the, the Hitler in the producers is, you know, uh, LSD's vision, such as it is, of Hitler. You know, it is neither of them are intended to be, they're intended as like funhouse mirror portrayals, you know. And I think by divorcing the character from any sort of sense of reality, it allows it to engage with humor in a way that you couldn't if you were actually portraying Adolf Hitler within the narrative. That makes sense. But isn't it a little weird, though, how the Hitler in Jojo Rabbit does feel a little bit like an independent entity? I mean, there, there are times when he is doing actions that are seem apart from whatever role he's playing in. Uh, Jojo's life when he's kind of swimming with all the other kids when Jojo's not even in the water for example that was one one that kind of stood out well but I think that's just like reflective of what Jojo thinks he should be doing as a good oh, maybe so. Aryan boy you know like it's what Hitler the Hitler in his mind would have him be doing but he's disapp- what Hitler would have but wanted. he's disappointed in him you know you know I mean and there's a growing mm-hmm. estrangement and a lack of presence um mm-hmm. that that makes him seem like a separate character or a friend who um jojo kind of grows apart from well he's emblematic he's emblematic of this uh you know this collection of propaganda this belief system that jojo rabbit pulls away from as he befriends a jew you know as he sees his mother die as a result of uh these policies these beliefs like of course he's going to pull away from the man who is the the titular head of the the reich the representation of all of the things that happened to him that are bad like of course he's pulling away from him did you like think, Ta- did you like Taika, Taika Waititi as Hitler I have a hard time separating him from Taika Waititi who I like very very much um just as a personality he's uh you know I've seen him live he's just a very effortlessly funny person he's very charming he's very charismatic I've interviewed him I've obviously watched his movies like i just like him a lot mm-hmm. so you stick a silly mustache on him um and have him kind of swish around a little bit i'm probably gonna inherently want to like him in the way people inherently want to like you know celebrities that they've made some kind of feeling of connection to is it a good portrayal of hitler i i don't know what defines a good portrayal of hitler it works within the comedy because it's it's defanging Hitler as an idea. It's reducing him and, and making him uh, small and ridiculous. I mean, I think that charisma you speak of is actually kind of important to playing Hitler, you know, like, I mean, for as evil and misguided as he was, uh, you know, he was to some people a charismatic leader. And, you know, we get that perception in the opening moments of Jojo Rabbit with the whole Hitler mania, you know, I want to hold your hand scene. Mm-hmm. And, and then coupled with the fact that this is supposed to be uh, Hitler as seen through the eyes of a child and therefore sort of childlike and silly, YTD actually makes sense to me, you know, because he is both charismatic and kind of silly, you know. And so for for the version of Hitler that this movie is engaging with, 
I think the ca- the casting and the performance makes a lot of sense. Pres- I-, I guess it, it, he uh, the uh, producer or studios, I forget who it was. It was not his idea for him to play Hitler. He was basically kind of pushed to do that because presumably no one else would want to do it and then the movie couldn't get made um but i i i like it i like his performance as it i i also am a bit of a uh ytd stan you know i i i just love him as a person and find him very uh like you said charismatic and engaging so it's it's a little hard to separate him here but i think that is sort of the idea you know i, I think you're uh supposed to see why this little boy would become like sort of enamored of this this version of hitler yeah and and again both films do create this context to where you get that that bit of distance in, in the producers it's in the context of a of a play that's being staged and in this it's in the context of a of a boy's imagination rather than the real thing so if you if you can get that you know just just to do a comedy of Hitler being Hitler in the, you know, during World War II, eh, it's a little harder, a little more difficult. There's another interesting connection here, not to, you know, you gotta, gotta just to stick with Nazis here, um, with some swishiness at play. Uh, Genevieve was talking about that a little bit with the Sam Rockwell character, right? In, in, uh, and, and the Al- yeah, and the Alfie Al- Allen character, who I think it's, it's pretty clear are, in some sort of uh, relationship as <laughs> as the as the film progresses, mm-hmm. and as uh, mentioned before, the portrayal of of Hitler and the producers is what you might call a little swishy, and then coupled with some gay panic <laughs> moments around the the director, who is not a Nazi, but um, the film certainly has some some moments of engaging with uh, homosexuality in uh, a negative light. I, I I would argue, I would say in a cheap comedy light. Okay. Which I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just being, I think, more specific. Yeah. But I I really just kind of want to take this opportunity to uh, to unpack the Sam Rockwell, Alfie Allen characters a a little bit and and the arc of the Sam Rockwell character in the context of, you know, him him being a Nazi soldier who has sort of fallen through the ranks, uh, you know, uh, over the career. And I, I think it's interesting in Jojo Rabbit to watch that character become more flamboyant the closer we get to the end. Uh, and then in the final moments, uh, you know, in his glorious plumage and outfit he designed with with Alfie Allen by his side riding into battle, sort of like not even trying to conceal it anymore. I think there's a, a, a sort of poignancy to that. Um, it's, again, maybe a little cheaply or mawkishly done but i think there is an effort to to say something there about homosexuality under a nazi regime that there is not an attempt to say anything of of substance about in in the producers but the producers does arguably sort of lightly engage with that tension i also read sam rockwell and alfie allen as a gay couple and I kept wondering if there was a version of either the script or or the film in editing that had more Alfie Allen and that had had more of that relationship. Because, you know, Alfie Allen is not a superstar, but he's at this point, thanks to Game of Thrones in particular, a very recognizable face. And to have him in that role when he has 
maybe a line uh, just seemed weird. It, it was perpetually distracting to me to have him on screen, but not speaking or doing anything significant, really engaging. And I kept wondering if there had been more to him and he'd been cut out for some reason. I kept wondering if there had been a version of the story that did play up their relationship a little bit more and made it into more of a kind of a selling point for Sam Rockwell's character, given that his his whole thing seemed to be he's not he doesn't really believe the things that he's being forced to do anymore. He doesn't, if there was a point where he did, he's long past that point. Um, from the beginning, he just comes across as like a little jaded and a little out of it, not exactly a true believer. So the idea that he's also gay and concealing that and kind of like living under, living under a cloud, living under a threat of being sent off to the camps for being gay is a big provocative potential issue in the movie that just becomes a bell that doesn't get rung. Unless, like Jewishness and the producers, it's just sort of meant to be there for for people who are looking for it, for people who are kind of in on the the symbolism of it. But you know, it's 2019. It's we're long past the point of like let's very very coyly hint at this for the percentage of the population that cares about it uh, and completely cover it up for everybody else. Like that's, that's not really how gay relationships work on film. I mean, these I, days. I guess the argument I would offer is again, that this is, uh, you know, we're seeing this world through Jojo's eyes. We're seeing this through the eyes of an 11 year old who would not, you know, he would see certain things, but he would not put them together in an explicit way of, of what was actually happening there. So I think you could make the argument that the film is just reflecting what he is seeing and then allowing viewers who are more savvy than Jojo to fill in the blanks. And there is some gayness explicit and perhaps not so much in the producers too, right? And the, the director and his uh, assistant and uh, maybe in Hitler himself? Question mark? Yeah, I, I have a a hard time seeing it in LSD's portrayal of, of Hitler. That just feels more like, you know, your uh, druggy, hippie mm. stereotype, uh, sort of divorced from any sexuality beyond ex- maybe like free love man, but not specifically homosexuality. But sort of the, the mannerisms, I think you can make an argument that, that they come through in, in his mannerisms and that that is, again, sort of operating on the level of, of cheap joke, <laughs> you know, like, oh, well, flappy hands scary, are funny. He's not the yeah. scary dictator guy. He's, he's, yeah. uh, we, we can make, we can, right, he's, right. Effeminacy is hilarious. It's, you don't need a punchline. It's a man acting sort of womanish. That's hilarious. I mean, that's, that's just sort of the mentality of the humor going on there, which is why it falls pretty flat, I think. Oh, right, but but I think there is also instinct of just like, what's the what's the most humiliating portrayal? What 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 portray? What would Hitler like the least <laughs> in terms of if he were around to see it? I mean, and and I think that that you know what someone like LSD and the way he um, car- carries himself and certainly his his kind of peacenik attitudes and everything kind of fit, fits that bill comically, as broad as it is. Dick, Dick Sean wasn't Jewish, was he? I, I, f- I feel like by, by virtue of YTD being Jewish, uh, Hitler would hate it more. Would yeah. hate that portrayal more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, though he's, he's more committed to, uh, 
to those values that because LSD is just yeah. kind of go off doing his doing his th- his own thing. Uh, I don't okay. think there's really a lot uh, of thought that's being given to uh, staying true to the character. <laughs> he just yeah. kind of goes, and so we we have a couple of powerful characters here who instigate the a- action of both films. Natasha, you you wanted to talk about that. Yeah, I just found it interesting that both of these films kind of revolve around horrible mentors. Uh, In one case, it's an imaginary friend who is (laughs) urging 11-year-old Jojo Rabbit uh, onto fascism and hatred and anti-Semitism and uh, racism and all sorts of things. In uh, the case of the producers, you've got a timid man who would never have considered all of these crimes being urged into them under sort of the pretense of like, live a little, like, you know, break out of your shell, do something exciting with your life. Uh, just just live. And that moment, uh, I'm always struck by the moment where Gene Wilder decides to go in on the scheme and the fountain bursts forth behind him. There's <laughs> yeah. just that, like the world itself is reflecting like how wonderful and exciting and thrilling it is that he's agreed to get caught up in this crazy scheme that is that only really exists to profit uh, Zero Mustel's character. And in the same sort of way, we've got Jojo being kind of like led down the garden path by by Hitler, who is similarly trying to profit. Like both of these movies center around terrible advice from terrible people who are trying to manipulate smaller and weaker and more innocent characters uh, specifically for gain um, while making a pretense of this being like a larger societal thing that they really should embrace uh, because if so, they're not living up to their full potential. Uh, And I just, for, for two such very different films, really with very different terrible mentors, I think it's, it's an interesting, Interestingly close parallel. I think where it notably differs is that in Jojo Rabbit, there is a, a counter mentor figure in, in, in his mother, you know, so there's a uh, there's a balance for of uh, that cynicism, I guess, maybe that, that you get in the in that relationship in the producers where Leo is just like kind of buys into to Max's whole thing. And, you know, they end up in prison together. And, and that's the happy ending, you know, whereas in Jojo Rabbit, it's more of a attention that Jojo is trying to figure out between these two like major influences in his life uh, as he again is sort of figuring out what sort of person he's he's going to be and because and I think that's where the movie Sentimental Street kind of you know where where its roots are and uh, again I I was pretty positive on the Scarlett Johansson character and, and that performance but I think it is also kind of indicative of where Jojo Rabbit's more, you know, sentimental streak comes from. Yeah, and I kind of liked one thing, one aspect to get, uh, you know, I'll, I'll get back to this um, topic at hand, but, but you mentioned Scarlett Johansson. Her approach to parenthood feels right to me in a way. Like, like there's a sense of like, uh, of she's patience. not like super doting. Yeah. Well, she's or, patient yeah. and she kind of understands, yeah. she, I think she understands who he who this boy is at his, at his core and that he's going to find his way like he's way off right now but he's she's not the type of person who's going going to potentially alienate him by getting upset and also she she feels like she's protecting him a little bit by not discouraging this interest of his but i think i think to get back to the 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 mentor thing uh, in terms of the mentees here uh, leo and jojo there's that allure of power i mean these are both weak people he's a 10 year old boy or 11 year old boy and an accountant who can barely get through you know 
every waking moment is a panic attack for this guy. So, so to have that promise of of strength from somebody who's who's got who's more persuasive and more powerful. I mean, there's 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 an allure to that, and it's hard for both characters to extricate themselves from it. I mean, and I, th- and I think there is a point in the producers where Leo does, and, with, and when things go wrong, terribly wrong, he can kind of. He can say, you know, this is the worst guy I've ever met. You know, and he can at least have that rec- that moment of recognition that he's just got this. He's just been brought into this awful mess by this really bad guy. I think it's worth noting. I in the producers, it doesn't seem like we really know enough about Leo to know like why he's such a, a shell of a man. Uh, this is not the kind of film that goes into deep detail about this kind of thing. Uh, that's that interested in backstory or motivations or character. Like these are fairly two dimensional caricatures, stereotypes, but in Jojo rabbit, a lot of what, a lot of the reason that he's willing to give in to this terrible mentor figure is societal pressure, peer pressure, like the sense that everybody around him believes in what Hitler has to say and that like he represents some kind of like ultimate father figure. And Jojo himself is lacking a father figure because his father is gone. And in that sense, like you guys were talking about Scarlett Johansson's character and how she kind of tries to push back and be the the other pole uh, from the, the terrible mentor figure. I think the sequence where she sort of pretends to be Jojo's father and pretends to have that conversation back mm. and forth is just really telling because in her way, she's kind of trying to portray another negative influence in his life and then ameliorate it. She's also in a way that almost seems too sophisticated for this movie is expressing her own disappointment and her own loss and her own anger at her lost husband. Uh, And I, I just, there's so much packed into that sequence and it's so important in terms of like understanding why Jojo believes the things he does and is, is willing to knuckle under to what basically amounts to a father figure that he's created uh, out of, of pieces of the zeitgeist and his own imagination and his own need. Uh, I, I, just, I think that that's a really touching moment, but it's also just a really densely, richly character-packed moment where you get to see for a moment just all of the kind of like raging anger and frustration and insecurity and yet like love and nostalgia uh, packed into her character. And that's where I don't know that I buy the whole idea of this movie being entirely from Jojo's perspective because mm-hmm. we're just seeing too much of her. We're seeing too much of what drives her and what she's trying to do. And then the sequence where she sits down with Elsa and, and talks about how she's losing Jojo oh you know, to, to Hitler and these beliefs and she hopes she'll get him back, but she doesn't, she doesn't know what to do. Like none of that is from Jojo's perspective. And again, it's some of the most telling uh, material in the film, I think. Agree that I, I, I don't want to claim that the movie is beginning to end told only through Jojo's perspective. I think that that is a argument you could make to sort of gloss over certain quote unquote flaws in the movie or cer- or explain certain things that maybe don't, don't make sense, but it's not true throughout the whole movie. That scene does pass Bechdel test, though. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Does it? I wasn't tracking it for that, but aren't they mostly talking about JoJo? But they also talk a little bit about, uh, there's a stuff about her, like, was it like riding a horse or something? Like, like basically, like, talking about what, what she'll be able to do or how, how you become a woman. There is a, a little talk about what it, what it means to be a woman outside of the JoJo of it all. 
it barely passes the Bechdel test. But yeah, I don't want to spend too much uh, time unpacking that. But uh, I have certainly been privy to some fairly vehement discussions about whether something passes the Bechdel test. If two women talk about something other than a man in the same scene where they're also talking about a man and mostly talking about a man. Like there's, there's a lot of debate about exactly where that line is drawn. Well, I, I mostly bring it up as a way to get to our next connection. <laughs> how, how does, how does uh, the producers do in the Bechdel test? <laughs> you know, I wasn't tracking for that, but I feel pretty safe to say that it uh, does. It barely has speaking uh, female characters. The concierge. Oh, that's true. And Ula. She, she, yeah. That's it, right? Ula's the only one who gets a name. The concierge um, is better than a name. Yeah, she's... I mean, they're... As with all the characters and and the producers, for the most part, like, they're kind of joke delivery devices first, characters second. You know, they don't... It's not really particularly concerned with backstory beyond the point to which it affects a joke, you know? Um, and it doesn't arguably it doesn't need to have that, but it doesn't uh, make for particularly engaging uh, women characters in, in this film. The kind of unfortunate connection between the female characters in these two films, really with the kind of primary female characters for whatever that's worth and the producers, is that they're seen primarily as uh, as like objects um, of ownership by male characters. Yeah. And with Ula, that's very open and, and played for humor. Like, haha, she's a toy that I bought. I can afford to get myself a nice thing, like a dancing Swedish bikini model with not much on her mind except uh, paid sex. But one of the things that bothered me on a kind of fundamental level about Jojo Rabbit was the degree to which Jojo and Ilsa's relationship is played as a sort of you know cute childhood romance a cute coming of age romance while it's also a kind of horrible situation where he's gaslighting her repeatedly gaslighting her in order to control her in order to control what but information the film acknowledges she has. that at the end yeah at the end but like nonetheless like his she punches him his gaslighting his gaslighting yeah. is played for humor it's played for adorableness and it's just as weird as it was for some people to see uh, Hitler played comedically, to see a Nazi played for redemption, it was weird to me to see a gaslighter controlling a girl, uh, like by basically by repeatedly threatening her life, by making up ways in which her boyfriend that he's never met and doesn't know has failed her and rejected her for humor. It, it's just, it's a very strange source of humor for me. And that part just really didn't land very well yeah eventually she punches him yeah uh, they they dance together <laughs> yeah there's uh, the moment of forgiveness but i don't know for me it was for me it was too easy she comes out into a world where she is not under constant threat of death and realizes that this boy made up a constant threat of death in order to try to own her literally to own her i had a conversation with my husband about this and he was a lot more forgiving of that dynamic because his feeling was Jojo doesn't necessarily see that as a romantic connection. He just doesn't want the last person in his life to go away. You know, he's lost so much. He's just scared of letting go of, of losing this last connection and looking at it in that light does make it a little more tolerable for me. But the fact that he starts like pretty much the first interaction they have 
is him lying about this supposed letter he's gotten from her boyfriend saying, uh, you're ugly and I don't like you anymore. Just makes it really hard for me to take him as a sympathetic character in all this. He's very young. Yes, he's very young. I don't want to excuse that relationship, but I I don't fully agree with the reading that it is played for laughs any more than the other parts of this movie that engage with difficult things are, are are played for laughs. Like, I think it's part of the sort of tonal tightrope this film is attempting to walk. I, like I said, I think it acknowledges what, that what Jojo is doing is is horrible. And I think it does so while also acknowledging that he is a young boy who has lost a lot and doesn't really know what he's doing and is being influenced by uh, terrible outside forces. And so I, I think I can't read that gaslight relationship as being play, quote unquote played for laughs. I think that there are elements of humor in it. There are jokes in it, but it's I don't think it's an inherently comedic relationship. He's struggling. I mean, he's he's struggling to kind of come to terms with this girl that he's been taught to hate and that he can't bring himself to fully hate. He, he's curious. He doesn't. A lot of the things that he's learning about her defy what he's been told to expect. And so that relationship evolves, I think, in a pretty a fairly earnest way and kind of an innocent way. I don't really see a whole lot of a romantic angle here uh, uh, you know i think there's a there's i mean he says he loves her you know but it's in that little boy way you yeah. know sure i, I don't fa- like I infatuated with your first kind of older girl yeah right? I, I don't think yeah. it's sexual but i do think that it's very significant that basically his first act of connection with her is to try to erase her boyfriend from his from her life yeah no that's true I, I just I think he sees him as competition, you know, for for his ownership of her, basically. I haven't read the book, but I've heard from a number of sources that the book is a lot worse in this regard, that he he keeps her in the closet for years, lying to her so he can control her. And I can't imagine that. Obviously, I can't imagine that playing out particularly well on film since the kids are at ages where they would change hugely over the course of those years. And uh, Taika Waititi presumably does not have uh, access to Gemini Man or Irishman level aging technology. And I'm glad Taika Waititi didn't go that far with it. But I'm certainly not saying that the relationship is played only for laughs. I'm just saying that aspects of the gaslighting, specifically the the letter reading, specifically the way he immediately rushes to erase her boyfriend in a pretty hurtful way, and the way she kind of takes it with a you're a strange little boy kind of grain of salt. Like, I think all of that is played for humor. Semi-related question. Do we believe that her boyfriend is real? Uh, I believe he's real and he, that he's dead. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, like, I, I do believe that that's a real picture and possibly represents like a, a real fantasy for her of a different way that her life might have turned out, that she hoped that her life was going to turn out. But yeah, I, I guess I took it at face value when she said that he'd gone away. I guess I, I missed the picture part um, that, that we saw an actual picture of him. Isn't the um, there's a, a picture of him? I It's been a little while for me. I thought there was a picture of him in her locket. Okay, I that may have just yeah, been a quick I don't, thing that I, that, that see, I missed. That makes sense. I, I I don't recall. I recall a locket. I don't recall what the picture is, but that makes that makes sense. Yeah, I guess th- that that must have just blown by me. Maybe I was distracted by someone making noise in the theater or something. But uh, possibly yeah, a cat so chasing I, I, its tail, I, I, jingling crazily. But yeah, so I think I read that as a little ambiguous and maybe a sort of defense mechanism on on her part of you know 
you know, I have a boyfriend and he's he's waiting for me. But that could just be a complete misreading on my part based on something I missed. I think it's a little defensive, but I also think it's just sort of indicative of how different they are. I mean, girls mature a little faster than boys. She's also a little older than him. And I think that he's looking at her and kind of seeing this, you know, aspirational fantasy of like being the girlfriend of what seems like a, a older, more sophisticated girl at a couple years older than him. Whereas she's kind of got the fantasy of being the girlfriend of this older, more sophisticated boy. Uh, and it's just kind of indicative how, how at that age, anybody like a few years younger than you has like a kind of glamour about them. You know, it's you're looking at your own future and wanting to be there faster because you think it's going to be more exciting. So I, you know, it, it makes sense to me that there's just kind of this little daisy chain of him chasing her, not necessarily thinking that he can have her in any meaningful way, her chasing this boy who's gone. I mean, the whole country is kind of chasing a future that's not coming, you know, chasing right. a future that they, for the most part, already know that they've lost. And it's just kind of evocative, of, like the entire situation that Germany is in at the moment. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm assuming we, we though, we, we probably don't have as much to say about the rich relationship between uh, Ula and uh, Bialystok and Bloom. So I, I point Jojo Rabbit as far as that is concerned. They do both kind of uh, treat uh, women like toys to a certain extent. If you, if you look at the whole uh, Elsa thing, the proprietariness of, uh, of that relationship. Yeah, I'm at a I'm at a bad place where I saw Frozen 2 today and all I can think of in terms of Elsa is let it go. Let her go. Let her go. Well, we're going to let these movies go for now. Uh, the Producers is widely available on streaming services. And it's on DVD and Blu-ray. Jojo Rabbit is in theaters now. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Uh, well, it's not so much lately, and I have recommended this movie on the podcast before, but it's been a while, uh, so I'm going to cheat and recommend it again, since it's a movie I thought about again and again while watching Jojo Rabbit, and I think in some ways it might have made for an even more interesting pairing with that film than the one uh, we have here. Mm -hmm. uh, that film is Boy, a 2010 coming-of-age film by Juan Taika Watiti, and the reason I kept thinking about it during Jojo Rabbit is not just because its protagonist is a young boy, in this case an 11-year-old Maori boy who is called well, boy, and not just because Waititi plays the role of a shady slash ridiculous character, in this case, boy's ex-convict absentee father, who returns to his life under suspicious circumstances. Uh, but the real reason I kept thinking about it is because of the <clears throat> problematic real-life figure who plays a central role in the narrative, one Michael Jackson. Uh, the film is set in 1984, the peak of the thriller era, and Boy and pretty much everyone in his life is obsessed with Jackson, including his father, uh, and it winds up being something they're able to bond over after a fashion. Uh, now, I'm not trying to equate Michael Jackson and Hitler here, nor am I claiming that Boy attempts to be at all revelatory about the accusations around Jackson and how it's affected our culture's appreciation of his music. But what I am suggesting is that, like Jojo Rabbit, Boy is interested in questions about how adolescents seek out and relate to cultural role models versus parental role models. And both films walk an interesting tonal tightrope, though I'd say Boy lands 
pretty squarely in the realm of the heartwarming at the end. Although I guess maybe Jojo Rabbit does too, depending on your on your uh, opinion. Um, oh, and for what it's worth, dancing plays a pretty central thematic role in both films as well. But yeah, I, I like I like Boy a lot. It's a very purely Watiti film. It is set in New Zealand, and it's got that uh, New Zealand strain of humor we've been talking about uh, in Spades. So uh, and, uh, definitely one to to check out. I'd say. That's the one film I think of his I, I haven't seen. I think I've seen all of his other directorial efforts. And uh, that was, I mean, it was kind of before people really were in, into him. So uh, you got you got him yeah. early. Just like just like the U2 album, Boy, which was their first. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's the way things start. Scott, what about you? Okay, so um, I have been, of course, working on this giant Disney Plus list for the New York Times. I'll be sort of the keeper of the list. And uh, we're going to talk about it for uh, a, a Patreon episode as well. So if you're a subscriber, you can look for that episode too. But um, one of the one of the films that I kind of discovered based on a recommendation from our, our friend Noel Murray is a documentary-ish movie called Perry from 1957 that was part of the True Life Adventure series. And it's based on a book by Felix Salton, who uh, was also responsible for Bambi. And it's kind of this fictional construct that they've built documentary footage around to kind of support. And so it's kind of a lot of nonsense. But at the same time, it, it reflects a view, an understanding of nature that I think is unusual and refreshing from what we get now. I mean, I think you watch the Disney nature movies now and yeah, they'll certainly get into things like environmental impacts, et cetera. But like Perry has moments of just utter terror. Right? You know, it's just it's about the circle of life, but it, but part of it is like there are predators everywhere. <laughs> you know, and it's just there's this uh, pecking order, and uh, and we're following you know a very vulnerable young female pine squirrel in uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, as it, it was this very lovely little you know forest area neighborhood i guess uh and uh you know he's uh, she's under attack and other animals are under attack and the film stages it all as as suspensefully as it can and the beginning of the film especially is really kind of dark and scary and and uh it's interesting i I just think it's it's an exciting approach to the subject i feel like thematically it reflects the sort of circle of life themes that you see in Bambi and it's kind of and its attitude is like hey kids you know this is how nature is you know it's kind of it can be kind of (laughs) rough and you know there's some murder involved but there's also (laughs) there's also a lot of 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 beauty and 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 mischievous behavior and things that you can identify with as well so I I really connected with it and I think it's something that's going to be you know tucked away into Disney plus it's a title that maybe people won't no to seek out and and i think if you are you know uh do have the service and i think and a lot of people obviously are signing up it's kind of a a lesser known thing that's worth checking out so perry p-e-r-r-i i'm just i'm suddenly hearing uh werner herzog talk about how the jungle is uh, (laughs) not that far away the harmony of overwhelming and collective murder Murder. that's right the birds are (laughs) screaming uh in agony um yeah it's uh it's it's not quite that level but it is it's I have a lot of respect for it, for sure. Tasha, what about you? 
at Fantastic Fest earlier this year, I saw this movie called I Lost My Body, which is an animated French film, which is coming to uh, very, very select theaters on November 15th, um, basically hitting New York and L.A. in advance of uh, an Oscar run uh, for Best Animated Film. Um, But it'll be a lot more accessible when it comes to Netflix on November 29th. This is a very strange uh, and sweet and different kind of movie. It basically starts with a severed hand in the morgue uh, kind of coming to life and setting out on an adventure. It it crawls around on its fingertips like Thing. You're inevitably going to think of Thing from the uh, Adams Family and Adams Family movies of various kinds. But... We flash back and forth between the hand's adventures in trying to get somewhere. It it seems to be driven to move in a specific direction to to seek out something. Um, And it encounters all sorts of uh, terrifying obstacles like rats that want to devour it and uh, cars and uh, just like barriers to something small and uh, completely defenseless like moving through the world, which becomes kind of a metaphor for how people operate in the world, trying to to get through their everyday life with threats all around them. But more significantly, the movie continually flashes back to the person that the hand came from, um, this young mixed-raced uh, teenager who's he's a pizza delivery man. Um, he's a little bit aimless. Uh, he is his folks are dead, and he's living with relatives who barely tolerate him. It kind of makes a turning point when he makes a connection, a remote connection, uh, through an unorthodox means that I'm not going to spoil with a girl and essentially starts stalking her and seeing her from afar. uh, She's this kind of cool girl in Scott Pilgrim versus the world mode uh, with colorful headphones and a a kicky hairstyle and just like uh, a a way of carrying herself that he admires. And she means a lot to him. Uh, He means nothing to her and he can't quite figure out how to end her life. And a whole lot of things fall out from there that are a little bit disturbing and very charming and melancholy and sad. This whole movie, in a way, is about loneliness and disconnection and trying to find your way in the world. But it's told in such an unusual way, both because of the the idea of the severed autonomous hand Mm. and because it's so artfully tied into the connection between this this lost body part and the the man that it came from. If you go watch the trailer, you'll see a lot of just the the way the director, first-time director Jeremy Kloppen, makes a kind of visual poem out of what this boy is like was like like when he was young concentrating on his hand his hand digging into sand at the beach his hand uh clenching onto his bike as he as he rides his bike um his hand waving in the air as he like leans out of a car it will make you appreciate your own body in just a a strange low-key way just like aware of your your physical extremities in a way that I think is very unusual for what's essentially a sort of romantic dramedy of sorts. It's a very unusual film. It's very beautifully animated. Uh, It's very sweetly told. And it just, it completely took me as like a sort of mainstream modern urban fairy tale of sorts. I think that's about the best way I'm going to be able to describe it. So I lost my body uh, on Netflix on November 29th. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I've heard a lot of really good things about it. (laughs) 
And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out December 2nd and 9th. Genevieve, what's coming up next? Noah Baumbach's new film Marriage Story is a personal film about the agonizing process of divorce and how it's designed to bring out the worst qualities of those involved. Not only does the couple, played by Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson, have to engage in a protracted and expensive legal battle against each other, they also have to deal with the fallout and other aspects of their life, including their relationship to their only child. That dynamic calls to mind Kramer vs. Kramer, an Oscar-winning drama starring Meryl Streep and Dustin Hoffman that also digs into the ugliness of divorce, especially when a child is involved. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of the producers, Jojo Rabbit, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve? I am the deputy TV editor at Vulture.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Scott? You can find me at on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, you can find me, you know, my writing on the New York Times, where I wish I've done this huge Disney Plus list. Uh, you can find me on, on Vulture, where I've done a, a big Noah Baumbach list, if you're, uh, since, since we're doing Marriage Story. And you can find me in NPR, and, and I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. Tasha? I am fully underway in my new job as the film and TV editor at Polygon, uh, which Woo-hoo. is the sister site of my previous uh, website, The Verge. Uh, I'm just getting my feet under me, but uh, by the time this hits, I should have my first reviews up there. Uh, I'm going to be writing as well as running freelancers and uh, editing people and all the stuff I normally do. And I'll be talking about all of this and more on my Twitter at Tasha Robinson. On our uh, missing host, Keith Phipps, you can find him on Twitter at, at kphipps3000. Uh, and he's also he's a freelance writer um, who uh, writes for Vulture and for The Ringer and for Polygon and for all kinds of other publications so check that out uh, you can stay updated on the next picture show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via twitter at next picture pod and via facebook at facebook.com slash next picture show you can also contribute to our patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash next picture show if you haven't subscribed to the show on apple podcasts already please consider it apple podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners and while you're there we appreciate every rating and review Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. And for every thumbs down, we're going to add another rambunctious kitten to the show. <laughs> yes, so we we do apologize for the the jingling and the in the shenanigans. Uh, I have a kitten, and uh, kittens are hard to control. Uh, thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.